It's Tuesday, February 21st, 2023, and you're listening to episode 607 of Fear the Boot, a show about tabletop role-playing games and a little bit more. Running time for this episode is 35 minutes. Welcome to Fear the Boot. My name is Dan. This is Mary. And this is Wayne. All right, before we get into the topic, Wayne, you have an announcement that I'm very excited about. So, yep. I've had a project I've been working on for a while with Chris Hussey and Dot Moore from Resting Glitch Face, but I haven't said a word about it because I don't want to promise anything till it comes out. Well, on Christmas Day, we released a special Christmas episode of a new podcast called Bite Size Tales that are a flash fiction audio podcast. We each had a story on it. It was a Christmas-themed one, and the regular episodes are starting up this month. Uh, We're going to be Wednesday releases. And what is the web address? BiteSizeTales.com. Okay. And if you're confused if it has a D or not, I bought both versions. (laughs) Bite Size Tales and Bite Sized Tales. So which one's the 301 redirect and which one's the actual domain? The actual is without the D. Okay, without without the D. Yes. But if you you want to stick the D in there. Yeah, you can. It'll go in the right place. Right. It will always find its way where it needs to go. That's right. Uh, anyway, I will link that in the show notes. So if you are interested in checking that out, and I hope you are, then please do go over there and take a look at that. So topic for today comes from a really random place of inspiration. So about two or three nights ago, I was waiting on a refill of a med that I'm on that regulates my heart rate. And in the middle of the night, couldn't sleep insomnia like always and my heart was racing it was like orange theory fitness laying in bed like my heartbeat was probably like 120 150 something like that and i couldn't sleep it was freaking me out so i went and sat for a while and i just grabbed the closest book to me which happens to be the D second edition dungeon master's guy and i was sitting there reading through this book for the first time in probably 25, 30 years. So I was reading it very much with fresh eyes. This is something that I'm now looking at, knowing a whole lot more about role-playing games as a hobby, knowing more about their history. The industry itself. Yeah, even now, because of mostly through Fear of the Boot, some of the people that are in the credits of this book, I have met, I have talked to, you know, gotten to know these people, pick their brains on what they were thinking. And to supplement this conversation before I introduce exactly what it is I observed in the book, Wayne, what was the documentary that you were just watching? Yeah, it was the other night, a bunch of people that I know are on Discord watching a documentary together, but I couldn't join them because I was at the hospital with my dad. So when I came home, I bought the documentary, watched it, and it is Secrets of Blackmore. And the documentary is really good. It goes into the history of Dave Arneson's Blackmore campaign leading up to the creation of D&D. So all of that time of miniatures wargaming, adding in role-playing, and how the hobby was basically created around a couple groups in the Twin Cities area. Apparently, a lot of these concepts date back to a game that was written around 1880, Called, called Strategos. Strategos, which was, as best I understand, it was a game that was published within the U.S. And it 
is apparently a bullet stopper of a book, at least to hear it described. <laughs> I've never read it. This is actually the first time I have ever even heard of its existence. But it apparently was written around a war game, but also introduced a lot of concepts of role-playing and what we'll call soft interactions or soft rules, where if you have a column in movement or something like that, you can go into a town and then role-play out a scene where you're colonel is talking to the town's mayor to learn something about the troop movements they've seen from the enemy or whatever. Yeah, one of the core concepts of it that they talk about is this idea that if these people, your troops, if they could do it in real life, then you can try it in game. Right. Whether there's rules for it or not, you can try it. The yeah. You can try anything, the origin yeah. of that idea. Yeah, exactly. If it makes sense, and I think the exact quote said something about it may not succeed. Right. Which implies, once again, there is either a die roll or some kind of a role-playing type interaction. Some decision-making element. Right. So there has to be someone or something that makes that call, that makes that decision. But these are all the basic building blocks of a role-playing game. And so it is kind of interesting to find out that this did not begin where a lot of people, including us in the past, thought it began, which is with Gary Gygax, Dave Arneson, and Alia, but instead it actually dates back about 100 years prior to their gaming. Yeah, and it was fascinating watching the documentary. A lot of them met because they checked this book out of the library, and then he looked to see who who else had checked it out, and then went around to those people to try to put together a gaming group, because it was somebody that had the same interest as them. Because there was no internet back then for them to look on. Yeah. And well, and you couldn't discover each other any other way because this is a hobby based on a hundred year old book that they are creating as they go or recreating, if you will, or codifying or whatever you want, iterating on it. I don't know. Yeah. Using it as inspiration to create something new. So it's a really interesting way to find a particular niche or subculture. All right. So let's flash forward to a couple nights ago. When I'm sitting there on the bathroom floor reading a book, trying not to freak out. And as I was reading through the second edition, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons Dungeon Master's Guide, I noticed two things about the rules. One of which I recalled from my days playing second edition, one of which I didn't. Now, the one that I recalled is a lot of the rules felt very disconnected haphazard. For example, on any given D20 roll, is it better to roll high or low? They couldn't make that decision. It was not until third edition that higher always became better. (laughs) That sometimes you wanted to roll under the value, sometimes you wanted to roll above it. And there's just a lot of rules in here where it's not like if you know how to do this portion of the game, that gets you 75 to 90% of the way there on how to handle another situation for example one of the things mary and i were talking about is we think one of the best takes on firearms in D because armor from that era is going to be insufficient to it is treat them as a ranged touch attack right well we know what a ranged touch attack is because this concept already exists from spells and other powers and so we don't have to learn a new set of rules to make this work 
We can just adapt it to uh, right. a, a concept that wouldn't otherwise exist in the game. Exactly, exactly. Whereas these are much more discrete, individual concepts that are kind of their own little compartmentalized world. This is a book of, that lacks that front section of, here is the core mechanic. If you understand this, you can know how yeah, to play the game. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's a okay. big lack of cohesion in the rules. All right, But the other common complaint about the older versions of D&D, and this is where I started to notice... I don't think I ever read this book correctly. And I have a sneaking suspicion a lot of people haven't either. That their memory, and I'm not speaking to you specifically, so chill out if you're getting your keyboard out, but that a lot of people that I've interacted with have a particular image of old school gaming that may be based on something that wasn't actually there. All right, here's what I noticed. There were a lot of rules. Not only were these rules disjointed, but there were a damn lot of them. And they went into great detail on all kinds of different stuff. You got to handle calendars this way and travel this way and poisons this way. And you, know, you can't take a dump without rolling on this chart to see how that goes. And as gaming developed into the future and we got towards White Wolf with more of a narrative bend, and then into the real indie stuff that was super rules light. Some of them rules lists. And yes, I realize games like Amber actually go back quite a ways. But in terms of them appearing really anywhere close to the role-playing mainstream, you're talking about things that didn't happen until the 90s, the early 2000s, some of them not even until, let's say, the 20-teens. Popularly, you're talking at least 20 years after the advent of role-playing games as like of D&D. Right, yeah, yeah. I'm talking at least popular enough that if you were to walk into a convention, these companies would have a booth, and there'd be more than one of them, and if you threw down the book in a pickup area, people would recognize what it was, and it wouldn't just be, you know, that one tiny little ultra-minority niche. But games of the first wave of role-playing, so let's talk the mid-70s through the mid-to-late 80s, were always remembered as being very, very heavy on crunch, very heavy on rules. The game dictated everything to you, and what indie gaming brought to the table, excuse the pun or don't, is freedom to the players and game masters. But as I was reading this book, I noticed there were so many places where the sentences were filled with words like might, may, can, or Phrases like, if you so choose, or if you don't know how to handle this, or some game masters may want to, or some players may like, and then it goes on to explain a concept, and it defines it well enough you could probably use it as a rule. But the whole thing is couched not in terms of, you have to do this because this is how the game is played, but hey... Here's some advice that might help make your game a little better, but we're not trying to convey a hard and fast rule here. This is just something you might want to consider. They even have sections in here, like one of them I'm looking at right now on Random Encounters, where they offer point-counterpoint on whether to even use random encounters or not. <laughs> wow. This, this staple of gaming that has frustrated people for so long. <laughs> yeah. This is fascinating to me yeah. because I've never played before D&D 3.5. I've never seen the books before 3.5 to even see what all this came from. 
I've only heard the people that talked about playing it. Well, and, and I haven't played before three. Well, I've played three, but not before third edition. But I have read some of the books because a lot of the um, the Forgotten Realm supplements, some of, some of those are only exist in second edition, and they're really good from there. But, yeah, I've never played in it. But, yeah, reading it is a different experience. Yeah, and I remember going back to my days as a teenager, I have been rules lawyered. And I myself probably rules lawyered off of things that now as I go back and read it, they weren't rules. <laughs> <laughs> they were suggestions. They were suggestions. They were options. They were possibilities. Now, I have no doubt that people thinking back may say, well, sure, some of the book was like that. If you've got the book, reread it. You may be surprised by just how much of the book is like that. From the very first set of words, you know, the foreword, all the way through the end of the book, how much of the book, once again, how many times you see things like optional, might, could, maybe, rules where they say, oh, well, here's why you might want to play a weak character, but if the player's not having fun, this is kind of what you could do to fix it. It's role-playing advice. Well, at my current age, with my current perspective on time and life, it, it suddenly occurred to me, well, of course they had to write it this way. Because they were not just teaching D&D, they had to teach the hobby. Yeah, one of the things they talk about in the documentary is this idea that in those early days as they were building this, every GM had their own set of rules. And you go to this person's house, and here's their rules that they're playing by, and here's all of this. And when they wanted to bring this to more people, that was one of the reasons they started writing it down was to kind of bring that out. And not everyone had that mindset to be able to create all of these rules. Yeah, well, and probably half to two-thirds, maybe more of this book is simply ideas and advice. I don't think at the time that I read this book that I appreciated they were not teaching how to play the game in the mechanical sense. They were teaching how to play the game in the conceptual sense, which is why I, I just mentioned that we're a couple editions in. And so by this point, they have not only had their own experiences playing the game and introducing it to other people, but also going to people who had picked it up at a local bookstore who had never interacted with these people before right. and sat down and watched how they played the game and they interact with it. And they were starting to see patterns of problems. And so this book, does what today things like our show does of telling you, hey, here's advice on how to make your games better. If you're struggling with something, here's how you could fix it. Like somebody gets poisoned. Well, I have no idea how to handle a poison. Well, here are some thoughts on ways poisons might work. And immediately after that is, well, here's our table. But if you want to invent your own, here's some things you should probably consider about the poison. It's not a linear set of rules. It's not like, we'll do this, now multiply by this, now carry this and divide by this, and now you have the saving throw. It's just, hey, think about these things. And even at times, I don't know specifically in the poison rules, but in other things, they throw in things like, you know, you could do this, and the game could work this way, but you're probably just going to piss your players off. <laughs> Their sectional magical weapons is like that. It says that, hey, some creatures are immune to anything but special magic weapons and such. So it says you probably should not introduce these monsters unless they're purely there for a fear factor. 
until the party has a means to fight them. Because otherwise, it's just going to frustrate them that they're all dying and can't do anything to retaliate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. See, now I'm really wanting to read these books. I know. I'm curious. Yeah. Yeah. And I know that they introduced, in even the first edition, something that wasn't normal in games back then of giving examples of play. Yeah. It was such a different concept from other board games and miniature war playing games that they had to actually not just give rules, but examples of play. Well, not just examples of play. You're absolutely right. But one thing that I would like to add to that to clarify something to the listeners is the examples of play were not always just about the rules. They were oftentimes fake social interactions. Like you might, for example, I'm looking at the section on preparing a calendar and it starts off by giving their sales pitch on why they think this is a good idea. One advantage of careful timekeeping is the detail and flavor it adds to the DM's campaign. If a calendar is kept, the DM has a way of recording the passing seasons, holidays, months, cycles of the moon, and other details that give a world life. Once again, there's no hard and fast rule here. They're just selling you on why this might improve your game. They use now as an example. Clerics have holy days to observe. Werewolves become more prevalent near full moons. Snows come and birds fly south. All of these are events that happen during the course of a year and make a world seem more real. Without some type of calendar, the DM has nothing to base his campaign on. Take, for example, the following exchange between players. Okay, so they're just inventing a conversation here. John, in parentheses, Johan the Cleric's player. Say, you know, I'm a member of this temple. Do I have to do anything or what? Do I give a sermon every week or are there some days of fasting or anything? DM, well, uh, yeah. You've got holy days you're supposed to spend in prayer. John, oh, when? DM, in desperation. This is almost like stage direction. <laughs> wow, I love this. Is it examples of role play? Yeah. It's examples of actually being a game master <laughs> right. and talking to and, your player. And, and, and being in that, uh... <laughs> yeah. And, 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 uh this is a short exchange. Some of these are Let pages. me answer that after I go poop. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And some of these are pages long. This one's relatively short, so I'll, I'll read the rest of it. DM, in desperation. Well, uh, Thanksgiving's coming. <laughs> <laughs> I like that Thanksgiving is now a high holy day, but okay. Uh, John, oh, but you said it's the middle of summer. Doesn't Thanksgiving come at harvest time? Only in our world. <laughs> Luis, I don't know who Luis is, but they... This is the random a-hole who just has to have an opinion, I guess. <laughs> Luis, chiming in, you know, it's been summer ever since my character started playing. <laughs> <laughs> DM, well, it's magic. <laughs> <laughs> Not exactly, and then they go back to the narrative text here, the instruction. Not exactly a lot of color or planning there. Now, if the DM had worked out a calendar, he could have answered those questions with a lot more confidence. I know they reprinted these books a couple of years ago. I need to get a copy. <laughs> but I wonder, now, and I'm not going to comment on OSR stuff, because OSR stuff, first of all, is much more modernly written. And two, I don't feel like I'm deep enough in OSR to really have good opinions on or educated opinions mm. on all of its nuances and different titles. If we never drag John Grana back on the show, he's apparently playing it. And so Yeah, same with Hussey. Yeah, that they might have a lot better thoughts than we do. So when I talk about this, I'm talking about old school gaming, not 
old school revolution or old mm-hmm. school revival gaming, which is its own thing. But as I read this, I'm like, holy crap, at least within terms of D&D, I think I profoundly misunderstood this game. <laughs> and as I have talked over the years to other people that played earlier editions of D&D, and they talk about their experiences or their frustrations or things they liked or disliked, it's usually very similar to my own experience. So I don't have any poll that tells me this is how widespread it is. But I do know, at least from anecdotal interactions, it's not just my gaming group. This was how most people seem to have looked at this, that I don't think they understood in a sort of hermeneutical, a how do you interpret the text sense, right? When we read poetry, we understand we're looking for metaphors and meter and other such cues. There's an intention to the writing that's going to be different from how you read a newspaper. And in the same way, I think that when people read these books, they had the understanding that they were reading a rules book like you would find in Monopoly and did not catch the lingual cues that... No, these are describing ways of improving your game or helping you head off problems before they occur or upping the quality of your games. It's not specifically, this is what you must do. And once again, I know that people went to me on chapter and verse, and I probably went to them on chapter and verse, beating them over the head with things that were never rules to begin with. I wonder how much of it, too, is conveyed interpretation, where if you have one game master who's reading the book and is like, well, these are the rules that I'm going to pull out of here and use, and you have a group of players who, if they're like a lot of groups I know, they have the one game master, and therefore the rules that he's using are now the rules... And if they're not reading the same book and getting the nuance out of it, like how much of this is just conveyed interpretation that then you lose the nuance. It's just like nobody really knows how to play Monopoly because they they're everything that people complain about is mostly a house rule for it. It's it's you being taught by somebody who is already doing things their own way and they're not going to give you the resource that tells you here are the other ways to do it. And you are absolutely right on that because... I think it's still true today because of the fact that you need a group to play. And so therefore, usually at least somebody in the group is going to be experienced in the hobby. That's not always the case now because things like Stranger Things and Critical Role, whatever. I see it at the game table right now of people playing D&D that remember things from previous versions and bring it in thinking it's in 5e. Yeah, when it's things not. Things that aren't in 5e anymore. There, there are changed. things that people still pull out of 3.5 that were never in. Like, the critical failure has always been a variant role in, or rule in 3.5. Like, but people think that it's part of the core rules and they carry it over. Yeah, but it doesn't I, you know, exist. it's funny it because even the critical fail thing is specifically addressed in here where they talk about why critical fails may not be a good idea and they actually recommend against them, but then go on to say, but if you want to do it, Mm -hmm. here's what you need to consider and here's how that would look in context of the rest of the game. And that's how they phrase it. I don't have that page open. Maybe I can find it here in a moment and read some of it. But you're absolutely correct, Mary, that a lot of role-playing over the years and even to this day, though certainly... I mean, almost exclusively back in the 70s, 80s, 90s, 
it was very much a cultural tradition that a group of people started doing it. New people joined, old people left, people separate and then go start their own groups at a college campus or with their friends in their new town and would pass on these ideas and create this shared understanding and or shared misunderstanding of what exactly role playing is. And I I see this in all kinds of areas of life where people are just certain that something is true, even though it isn't. It never has been. I found it really fascinating in the last few days having my views, my opinions on what old school gaming was so shaken up because I didn't come to gaming until my late 20s. I never played a lot of these. I wasn't a you know, wasn't in the hobby when these came around. And so I just have heard what other people have to say about them. And I hear all of the stories about D&D being this dungeon crawl, all about the combat, not much role playing at all. And then I watch this documentary and listen to the people that were there when it was being created. Talk about the role play and the you can do anything and all of this that doesn't at all fit with the box that D&D had been put in, as other people described it to me, it really did kind of open my eyes to that these early gamers were very role-play heavy in a lot of the things they did. Yeah. yeah. They didn't necessarily have combat every session. I'll say one of the examples you gave, Wayne, when we were prepping this topic, as you said in that documentary, they talk about a day where people came over. Yeah, it was one GM had this idea, and... So he sold the players that were going to play this Napoleonic War miniature game. But for the first session, we're going to play out the part where you go into the city and start getting information and gathering. He had no intention of ever playing the miniatures part. They came over and had a whole session of just role play. Without knowing that that's what they were doing. Yeah. And this is before role-playing was really even meaningfully codified. Yeah, it was just so something they were they basically were, LARPing. Yeah, it was just <laughs> it something is. they were adding into their miniatures game yeah. that became we're, we're, the whole game. We're playing grown-up make-believe because we're not even necessarily... We don't have a die mechanic to fall back on. Yeah. It's literally it, who can argue the point and, it, and yeah. I decide when you're right. It, exactly. It's... Something that we would see as closer to one of these rules light or rules or, list yeah, indie games, yeah. like yeah, Amber Diceless Inspectors Fiasco, whatever. And this is not a new idea. This was the genesis of the RPG. Yeah, and when you hear about it, that this grew out of wargaming, I think of what I know of wargaming. I'm these people that are very strict with the rules of you do this, you measure well, this far, you do. I mean, you can watch wargaming now. Like it's become miniature table, yeah. like you know any kind of miniature war games but it's still the same thing where it's like i can move this far i can attack this way i have this option but i also roll these many dice and you can only defend this one way and And there is fun to be had in that oh absolutely i as somebody who has both skaven and orc armies yes there there is (laughs) so i'm gonna read a little bit from the section on artifacts and relics all right i'm gonna read the whole thing because it's really long i'm gonna read just a little bit here from artifacts and relics Because of their grand impact and titanic significance in the scheme of things, artifacts should be used sparingly. There are only so many times the character can save the world before it becomes old hat. (laughs) So no hard and fast rule here, just concepts. Don't be too eager to introduce these items into play and don't bring them in too often. Artifacts and relics represent the epitome of magical items. They are going to lose a lot of effect if every king in every kingdom has one in his treasure chambers. (laughs) 
If characters only find one artifact in their entire careers, it will be enough. Well played for all its drama, it will lead to an adventure the players will remember for a long time to come. When you do decide to introduce an artifact or relic, you design it specifically for your campaign. Some examples are given at the end of this section, but artifacts should always be made to fit your campaign, not the other way around. In this way, the players will never know what to expect, not its shape, its history, its powers, or its purpose. Yeah, it makes you wonder how you got to the point of people knowing things that are in the book and knowing the stats of it and seeing this show up oh. and immediately say, when knowing When somebody it. hands you a deck of cards and asks you how many you want exactly. to know exactly what's happening. Yeah, if you play D&D for enough time, everybody knows a deck of many things. Everybody has seen some body part of Vecna. And through here, exactly as said, I'm not going to read this whole section, but they give some random charts to roll on, some suggestions. They give some pre-made ones you can use. But... They're like, if you're going to do this, okay, here's kind of what that process might look like. But it starts off by saying, I mean, I just read it. It starts off by saying, we don't recommend doing this. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We recommend you just invent it yourself and make it fit your world. And I wonder if part of this comes from exactly that, where it takes a very specific type of person who's willing to come sit down and build an entire world from scratch and all the artifacts and put all of this in like that's not every game master and if you're looking at this book as a i do want to run this i want to play this game with my friends but i'm going to just take what's in it that i can use as a codified rule because it's there and that means i don't have to come up with it i wonder if that is really just enough people didn't have the time or energy or creative output to create things so they ignored all the stuff that was build your own and just took what they could What's interesting is you have this book that is all giving you advice and telling you to build your own, and then the module market grows around it. That is kind of the antithesis of what the book is saying. Yeah. Well, and and although actually that does come back to, like, there's always that stereotypical cycle that Gygax is supposed to have said, where you start here, you move here, and eventually you build your own role-playing game. Eventually you run a convention. Right, well, yeah, that too. You build your own role-playing game and start a convention around it. But that idea of building your own role-playing game really is the epitome of this, which is, this is really up to you. You have to put in everything that we're not giving you. We're giving you options. Yeah. But it's up to you to build it. And so many people just stop at, this is here, this is fine, I'm going to use it. Yeah, and you know, I don't have a problem with that. I don't think anyone at this table does. No. If you as a game master want to use this for reference, or you're not feeling that creative, or you just don't enjoy that part of running a game, and you want to use what they've got there, say, hey, if they've thought this over and they have experience, they designed the rules, they've played the rules... Let's just use their system because it's good enough. There's nothing wrong with that. I think what really baffled me was how much I assumed was in this book that either is not there or is there, but in a very different form. And how much of this, as we've been saying, it's just a shared cultural understanding that doesn't actually match the scripture. I'm wondering if some of it came not from the book, but from the module. Because when you talk to the old school players, a lot of times they'll be sharing stories of the specific modules they played through. And I wonder if some of the rules and alternate rules that came with the modules and the way the modules ran you through things actually became more of a defining experience of Mm D&D than the 
actual core rulebook did. Well, and that, yeah, because that becomes like, instead of just reading through a couple of examples of play, that becomes the example of play. That is, this is how this game works yeah. in, in like, but in a more rigid structure than anything presented in that book. Yeah, I think as someone from the outside that was not part of the hobby then and came to it later and just hearing all the stories, I think a lot of the shared vision of what D&D was and what those early games were actually were from the modules that were guiding a play style. Mm-hmm. And that had more to impact what we think of as D&D than the, than the rule book itself. Yeah, that part I can't comment on too much because our gaming group, even from the start, never really used modules. I owned a bunch. I had a bunch. Sometimes because I just like the art. Some of them have been given to me by people. So, I mean, I have modules going all the way back to first edition D&D, but I don't have a long history of play with them. So I'm not sure what relationship they did or didn't have or would or would not have had with my gaming group. Maybe they would have, and maybe that was a common shaping factor. I don't know. Just what's in lack of personal experience there, but. Well, and I wonder how much of it too would come from if we're creating a hobby by having a bunch of disparate groups of people get together and do this on their own, those modules being the one experience that you can share across groups that don't otherwise know each other become a touchstone in a way that they might not have otherwise. Because you can reference this with a group who has never played your home game and like they know what you're talking about and you have that shared experience. So I wonder if that spreads faster or more concretely through the hobby than, you know, the each individual group and whatever they decide to do. So one random aside to close this out on, I, I guess I just once again don't remember this book all that well. Because I didn't realize before someone actually went and created it, the Book of Vile Darkness was just a standalone magic item. Mm-hmm. And then someone felt the need to actually go out and create it as a rule supplement. Yeah. I didn't realize that. So, I don't know. I guess it just never came up. Because we never really played evil characters or dealt with anything <laughs> all that depraved in our games. So, I, I guess it just never came up for us. But anyway, it's just an interesting thought exercise. And... Once again, be sure to check the show notes. There's going to be a link to Bite Size Tales. Tales. And then also, I will see what I can find link-wise for that documentary one. What was the title of that again? Secrets of Blackmore. Secrets of Blackmore. Okay, I'll see what I can find on that. So if anyone's interested in tracking that down to watch for themselves, uh, you can go out and find it. And I'll see if I can figure out where it's streaming. Their website lists everywhere you can get it. Oh, okay. Never mind. Then I'll just link straight to their website. And I'm going to have to go watch this myself because I just heard about this for the first time right after dinner tonight. So as always, thank you guys for tuning in. Have a great week and great games. And we will catch you next time. This has been a production of Fear the Boot, copyright 2023. Listeners are free to use this episode in a non-commercial endeavor, so long as credit is provided to feartheboot.com. You can find previous episodes and other resources at feartheboot.com. If you wish to support this show and its related endeavors, you can do so at patreon.com slash feartheboot.